All right, so this morning we, we continue our study um, from Vaughn Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. And uh, we'll continue this morning by picking up on the first of the eight sections that Roberts lays out. And that first section is on the pattern of the kingdom. Um, if you recall from last week, we looked at an introduction to the Bible and also how all the Bible is pointing to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately. Um, so moving forward this morning, as we jumped into the pattern of the kingdom last week, I highlighted two points um, about God, that uh, God is the author of creation and that he is the king of creation. And so we'll pick up on that this morning by looking at human beings being made in the image of God and the rest that God has designed uh, for his, his people. So the first thing that I want you to notice is that uh, we are creatures, as Genesis uh, 1 tells us, made on the same day of creation as the beasts and sharing much in common with them. However, we are not animals, nor are we evolved uh, from them. On your note sheet there, uh, the first sections, we alone of all God's creation have been made in his image. So look with me at Genesis chapter 1. And we'll read verse 27, Genesis chapter 1. And verse 27. So if somebody can read that for us. Okay, good. Now, that statement is true of all people, right? Male, female, black, white, yellow, brown, young, old, born, unborn, able-bodied, disabled. All humans are made in the image of God. Um, you know, perhaps you've heard somebody say to you, or maybe you've said it to somebody, that, that you're a chip off the old block. Or you're a, you're a spitting image of your father or mother. Um, the point in, in those statements are not that you're identical to that person, but that you bear a strong resemblance to that person in some, in some way. There's a likeness there um, that, is, that is seen. And that's similar with us and God, right? We're not God but we're made in, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. We, we bear resemblance of him. Um, and on your note sheet there, I really like the way that Edmund Clowney put it. He said, man is a creature because he is made by God, but he is a unique creature because he is made like God. In, in other words, we reflect something of God's nature in a way that nothing else in all creation does, right? There's a uniqueness to humanity, and it's that we've been given this great dignity of being made in the likeness of God. As those who have been uniquely made in God's image, we have that great dignity, and we've been set by him above the rest of the created order with responsibility for 
the rest of the created order. If you look with me again at Genesis, uh, back up one verse in Genesis 1.26, the scripture says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay, so we see here that because we are made in the image of God, and God is our loving ruler, we reflect that over the rest of creation. That's what we have been called to do. So on your note sheet there, mankind was created as God's stewards. Mankind was created as God's stewards, entrusted with the care of the rest of his creation. Now, a uh, uh, Psalm that kind of highlights this a little bit more is Psalm 8. So I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 8. And if I can have somebody read that for us, the whole Psalm, and it's an entirety, it's nine verses. And whoever would like to take that, take that, Jimmy, thank you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings crown him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, good. Thanks, Jeremy. So in particular there, you see verses 5 through 8 really highlights, again, what's said in Genesis 1 about the creation of man and what man's responsibility would be in this world. Now, also, if you remember, the writer of Hebrews quotes this psalm in Hebrews 2 and points to Jesus as the fulfillment of it, as the, as the true man who would actually come and do uh, what the first man failed to do, which we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks. But again, that's for us, that's helpful as, again, we think about all of the Bible pointing to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish. Now, let's look back at Genesis 1, and I want to read verses 26 through 31 in their entirety here, and just think for a couple minutes about man in the image of God. So if I could have somebody read Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, good. So this passage really, again, helps us to see the purpose for which God created man. And you see here this, this command to subdue and dominate, right, um, in, a, in a loving way, to, to rule over God's creation. So, so man, as kind of a vice regent under God, uh, created to reflect God's image in the way that he cares for the creation that God has entrusted to him. And then you see this command to be fruitful and multiply. And, and the point there is that as image bearers, we were created to spread the image of God throughout all the earth. Now we're going to see, as we get into next week, when Desmond uh, starts walking through Genesis 3, that something very tragic happened that changed the picture of what was going on. But Christ is working in recreating us back into the image of God as we rightly reflect him. Okay, so we get, really, you can see how amazing it is that as, as you just really look at Genesis 1 and then into Genesis 2, how much you can understand about the world that we live in by just mastering these first two chapters of the Bible. Uh, because these first two chapters, and then obviously into the third, sets the stage for everything else that's said in, in all, of, all of Scripture. Now, as we come out of those six days of creation in Genesis 1, we have one more day to look at. And this is where, you know, we would say, I don't know if the if the chapter break was really helpful there at the end of chapter one, because there's something important that's said here as we move into chapter two in Genesis. And I want you to look at that with me. Genesis two, verses one through three. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now that's a very helpful uh, passage there as we think about the rest, of, the rest of Scripture, because some people may think that the creation of human beings is the climax of God's creation. However, as we've just read here in Hebrews 2, and this is on your notes, that the goal of creation is rest. The goal of creation is rest. God had created man to be in fellowship with him, joyfully resting in the land that he had created for him to inhabit and to enjoy God and to walk with him. And that's what we see in the remainder of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a detailed account of God's care and love for those that he's created in his image. Uh, we have a picture here of the goal of creation, a picture of how life was designed to be lived. And I want you to notice, because we're going to read through the rest of Genesis 2 here, and I want you to notice here how this is marked by a series of relationships that we'll highlight after we read through this. But, but kind of keep an ear out for the different relationships that you see in the remainder 
of chapter 2. So let's break this up a little bit. And if I can have somebody read chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, I'd be willing to do that. Okay, Will, thank you. Uh, Verses 10 through 17. Debbie, thank you. And then uh, verses 18 through 25. Dave, thank you. Okay. All right. Let's begin. Will. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, please. Thanks. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is... Pishon. That's how I'm going to pronounce it anyway. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and not and were not ashamed. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, so as I mentioned, there are some relationships that we want to see. So let's just let's think through that. What relationships do you see here in Genesis two? There's three primary relationships that. Should, you should notice. What's the most obvious? Man and wife. Okay, good. All right, so you got man and wife. What else? Species. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's the man and the woman, right? Oh, okay, gotcha. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, man and creation, right? See the relationship there? And primarily, man and God, right? Okay, and that's the thing that we want to see first and foremost is this glorious relationship between man and God. You have God here lovingly caring for the man that he has made, places him in this beautiful garden, provides for all his needs, including the creation of woman to be his helper and companion. Adam and Eve are given great responsibility, but there's no doubt who is ultimately in charge, right? There's one that's giving commands as this is being laid out for us. God is setting the rules of creation here. But, but his law, it's not oppressive, right? It's for their good, right? Don't eat that, right? There's, there's a specific command given there. Um, that's the only prohibition that we see. Uh, in this whole exchange here, that what we see in, in verse 17. And then we also see that beautiful relationship between man and woman. So this is on your notes. First, God and man. The beautiful relationship then between man and woman. Man created first. Woman created as his helper, one who is suitable for him. Uh, man is leading in that relationship, but his authority, uh, authority is not abusive in any way. And the woman does not resist it. Okay, there's this loving uh, relationship that's going on. They're enjoying that, that marital bliss, so to speak. Uh, and that's what you see here in, in verse 25. Notice verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so there's complete intimacy here. No fear, no guilt. Again, everything is, is beautiful. And then, again, you see that final relationship between humanity and the rest of creation, right? Human beings and creation work in harmony so the earth brings forth its fruit. So again, Genesis 1 and 2 really lays out for us the rest of what you're going to see in, in, in Scripture about relationships and the restoration of those relationships because of what happens in Genesis uh, chapter 3 here. But in Genesis 1 and 2, you have uh, who made everything, the, the origin of all things, um, why he made us, and for what purpose uh, he made us. So you, you get really a great display of man and his purpose and um, the relationship that he is to have with, with God. So on your notes there, we see in the Garden of Eden a pattern of the kingdom of God. And if you remember from last week, I mentioned this a few times. You have God's people... Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule. And as a result, they enjoy God's blessing. Okay, so on your note sheet again there, we see in the Garden of Eden a pattern of the kingdom of God. God's people, Adam and Eve, live in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule. And as a result, they enjoy God's blessing. As I mentioned a couple times, sadly, next week, Things didn't stay that way for long. Desmond will begin to unpack that. That ever since the fall that we're going to look at in Genesis 3, God has been at work to reestablish his kingdom and call a people back into fellowship with himself. He wants us to enjoy that goal of creation and enter into the perfection of the seventh day, that rest uh, that he has. 
And we recognize, as we fast forward a little bit and we come to present day, we recognize that we can enjoy some of that rest that God has created us for, can't we, right? This is where it's really helpful to have the background of Genesis 1 and 2 in mind when you hear Jesus say in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest, right? So you look back at Genesis 1 and 2, and you see this aspect of rest, and Jesus is saying, here is where you find it, in me, as the perfect image of God, the one that you're being brought into, and who is recreating you into that image. So as Christians, we begin now to enjoy that rest, and we can look forward to it fully in the new creation when Jesus returns. And, and it's with that thought of, of entering that rest that I want us to look in the book of Hebrews uh, with the time that we have left here. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 here. I'll go ahead and and read this. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, it's a great passage, and especially as we think about it in light of what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2, and then as we'll get to in uh, subsequent lessons, as we see Israel and the land, and, and we start to flesh that out a little bit. But when we think about the concept of rest that is spoken of here in Hebrews and in Genesis 2, we're speaking again about this perfect relationship of God with humanity. Uh, that's how it was at the beginning before sin entered the world. From that point on, however... And we see this show up here in Hebrews 4. 
the writer urges his readers to enter that rest and to do so through faith in Christ. Okay? And ultimately, that rest will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, we see that in Hebrews 4.9 here, where he says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And to understand what the author uh, means here, by a rest that remains, it's helpful to understand uh, a theological concept that is known as realized eschatology. All right, so I just want to take a minute to kind of flesh that out, and I'll try to do it in a very simplistic way. I think you'll be able to track with this. Richard Phillips brings this out in his, his commentary on Hebrews, and it's really helpful. Um, eschatos is the Greek word for last, and eschatology means last things, or with reference to the end. When we say that Hebrews holds a realized eschatology, we mean that the writer emphasizes that our present possession, uh, or the writer emphasizes our present possession of things that God has promised. Okay, so for example, rest. We've, we've entered into that rest now. We, we possess it at some level. We don't possess it fully like we're going to on that day, but we do possess it uh, to a great degree now. Although those blessings that have been promised for us will be fully realized at the end of history, we already begin to realize their benefits now by faith. Okay, so that's what we mean when we talk about a realized eschatology. We're speaking about the things that are promised at the end coming to pass in the present at some level. For example, anyone who is in Christ is a what? New creature. Now, the fullness of that will not be seen until the last day when we, when we see ourselves for who we truly are as new creatures in Christ. However, that transformation has already begun, hasn't it? Right? Your desires are, have changed and are changing daily, hopefully, right? right? You're being conformed into the image of Christ. So what you're going to be on that last day and what God has promised us, that when we see him, we shall be like him, right, is, is already, has already begun in conversion, right, when we were regenerated. We are new creatures. So we're, we're going to be what we already are in part, right? Um, the reality that we have been given eternal life, Right? We're going to know the fullness of that on that last day. But we've already entered into it now. And that's where we have to believe the promises of God, because some days we don't feel like that. Right? We believe the promises of God that I've already entered into that eternal life. And the fact that I'm a new creation with new desires and new longings being made into the image of God is the assurance that I have that on that last day, he's going to complete the work that he's already begun. Okay? So that's, that's kind of what we're getting at here in this aspect of a realized eschatology. For instance, another example of this is we've already seen how Christ destroyed Satan by dying on the cross. Hebrews 2.14, if you look back just a little bit, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
right? So we, we see the destruction of death in the death of Christ, right? That, that's already happened. And while it's true that Satan is not yet removed from the scene, that as Peter says, he's still a, a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy who, who torments the people of God, nevertheless, his doom is sealed. And it was sealed at the cross of, of Christ. And even now, we experience freedom from slavery to him, right? This reality, which will be consummated at the end, is conveyed to us now by faith. So, so if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. But isn't it true that some days we don't feel that way? <laughs> Why do I still battle with these thoughts, with these actions, right? I, I don't feel like a free man some days. I feel like I'm still enslaved. And that's where by faith we have to, as Paul says in Romans 6, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, right? We have to preach that truth to our hearts. But that's what we're talking about when we talk about realized eschatology, right? Is that you are free. And yet that freedom will be fully experienced on that last day. But you taste it now. You see it. You see it now, right? Yeah, Will. Um, just to clarify, this is the exact same thing as the now and the not yet. Yes. That's right, exactly. Another way to say that is the now and the not yet. Yes. Okay. Another example um, of realized eschatology is the rest offered to God's people. On the one hand, we now enter that rest by faith, as Hebrews 4.3 says here. For we who have believed enter that rest. Okay. We enter that rest. And notice the present tense there. We who have believed enter that rest. Through faith, we know the certainty of salvation and come into communion with the living God, which is what eternal life is all about, right? And so instead of, of laboring in futility to earn forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God, we rest upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? I'm, laying, I'm banking everything on that, not on my own works, but on the work that he has performed. And again, as the, as the writer to the Hebrews is illustrating here, the temptation for these uh, believers was to go back into the Old Testament sacrificial system and somehow maybe even mix that in with belief in Christ so as to avoid persecution. And so the writer is warning them, don't go, there's nothing there. Those were all types and shadows to be fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Rest in him, trust in that, believe in that. So even in this present life of toil, our faith rests on him and his saving power. So the things of heaven, the things of the future which are promised us by God are made real to us now through faith so that we live by the strength that he supplies, right? And we see that progress in, her, in our lives. However slow at times that progress may seem. And I think we can all testify to that. Amen, right? It feels we take two steps forward, one step back, and so on and so forth, or maybe even three steps back. Um, we, we don't feel at times like we're making that progress, but the promises that we have in the word of God is that we are those things that the Bible declares us to be as the people of God, and we have to embrace that by faith. Now, 
it's important to state that as strong as this emphasis is throughout Scripture, it is important that we do not overstate the case here. Uh, When Israel was in Canaan, they had a foretaste of God's rest. That's what the promised land signified, okay, that rest. But they were, in fact, surrounded by real enemies, weren't they, right? Their need for labor and warfare was very great. And the book of Joshua tells us of their successes and their failures. The the book of Joshua is a book of war. (laughs) It's not a book of, of peace. And so that Canaan rest that Israel entered into pointed to a greater rest, a greater salvation, of which it gave a foretaste, but not the fulfillment. And this same understanding applies to the Christian life. How wonderful it is that we rest upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We lay our burdens on him. We bring to him our tears, our fears, and we find real rest in him. Yet what we long for is the day when there will be no more tears, right? When there will be nothing to fear at all, and when God's promised rest is brought to full consummation in glory. And we get a beautiful glimpse of this in various passages throughout Scripture, but one that always encourages me so much is Isaiah chapter 25. I want you to turn there with me. Look at Isaiah 25. I want to read verses 6 through 9. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. The scripture says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Just notice the imagery that's laid forth here. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And and what is that? He describes it here next. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, right? So here's here's the, uh, the fulfillment of what we're anticipating. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's a tough one to compete. He he says it better, actually. The the voice is better on that. (laughs) No, it's all good. It's all good. Um, but what an encouraging passage, right? We'll wait for that. I'm not going to try to compete with that. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, what an encouraging passage, though, right? Um, it's going to be said on that day. And doesn't that just flood your heart with joy as you think about it? And, and the reason that that stirs up within us so much emotion is because we are new creations in Christ. It's the Spirit testifying with our spirit, right? This is what it's going to be like on that day. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us, right? This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice 
in his salvation. That's the rest that is promised to us that we've entered into now and we are tasting by degrees, but we will taste fully on that day. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see dimly as through a glass, right? So we see, but, but it's still tainted by sin. But on that day, face to face, nothing hindering, just beholding the Lord in all his glory. What a day that's going to be. That's the rest that is promised for us that we have already entered into. And so there on your notes, though we have very real blessings in this present life, what we now experience is not all there is for the believer, and we rightly long for a greater rest to come. Okay, That's the summation of Richard Phillips in his commentary there on Hebrews. So um, I, I hope as you think about Genesis 1 and 2, and you think about what God has laid out for us as his people and the rest that he refers to here at the beginning, that you'll begin to see types and shadows of that throughout the Old Testament as you read through, in particular with Israel, God's covenant, old covenant people, right? Going into God's place, the land of Canaan, and experiencing God's blessings, but they don't remain there, do they? Because they continue to rebel and they're cast out of that land just as Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. So you have these types and shadows that all come to fulfillment in the New Testament with the coming of Christ, where he brings us ultimately as the people of God into the land, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will enjoy nothing but blessing and there will be nothing to thwart that blessing for all eternity. Okay, so just kind of a big picture as we think about Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And again, there we have the pattern of the kingdom with God as the author and king of his creation, with human beings created in the image of God to know him and spread his image across the whole earth and in so doing, glorifying his name, making much of him, and that the goal of creation uh, is rest, which you'll see as you continue to read throughout the scriptures. So, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. So, you have the beginning of the story and the end of the story. If you, if you just read those passages, you'll begin to see a lot of similarities between those. So, that's, that's an encouragement. Maybe this week sometime, if you have time, read Genesis 1 through 3 and then read Revelation 21 and 22 and see both the similarities and the dissimilarities between those uh, end caps of the Bible, because they help us to look at the Bible as a whole and understand where it all started and where it's all, it's all headed. And that's what we'll seek to unpack as we continue to work our way uh, through this study. So I finished a few minutes early today. Any questions, comments? Yes, Debbie. Perhaps. <laughs> if somebody has it more readily than I do, they're back in my notes here. T tell me what it was. The, where man is a creature because... Yes. Yep. Like God is the fill in there. Stewards. Yes, stewards. Man was created as God's stewards. 
Any of the ninth point? Yeah. What is the ninth point? Yes, exactly. Okay, so God's people, Adam and Eve, live in God's place, Garden of Eden, under God's rule. And as a result, they enjoy God's blessing. Okay? Good. I should bring my note sheet up here rather than use my notes next time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus' response is, uh, my father is working until now, and I am working. Yes. And so is that uh, sort of this, you know, kind of uh, putting off the rest until uh, God has finished these works that he's talking about? Yeah, so, so in Genesis 1 and 2, right, you have the creation of the six days and then the seventh day of resting. As we'll see next week, man rebelling against God. And therefore, the, the work of redemption really begins at, at that point, right? Of God bringing people back into a relationship with him. So that's, that's the work that's being referred to there, that work of redemption, of bringing people back into uh, a fellowship with him, consummated at the very end in the new heavens and the new earth. Make sense? Okay. Good question. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And some of us have an easier time with that than others. <laughs> <laughs> and others do, yes. What's she referring to? I have no <laughs> idea. But, I mean, it, it's refreshing. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and it really, you know, that, that passage in Matthew 11, you know, when you, when you think about a biblical theology, when you take the totality of Scripture, and you hear, hear Jesus saying, come unto me, all who are heavy laden and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you will find rest for your souls. Um, you think of just about the turmoil that we come into this world with as fallen image bearers of God and the need for that restoration to take place. Um, and then that daily need, right? We're not perfected yet, so we haven't just fully, we're, we're, not, we're not trusting the promises of God as much as we ought to. Right? And that's the daily war is just to get our hearts in that place of resting and trusting in the promises of God. Am I correct? Yes. By rest, you mean a state of mind? Yes. Not, not inactivity. That's correct. That, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yep. Good. All right. Good stuff. Let's pray and uh, we'll, we'll head into the sanctuary. Okay. <clears throat> our Father, we thank you uh, for this study and thank you for just giving us that big picture, and especially as we've thought more succinctly today about this, this topic of rest that you have called us to enter into through Christ. We thank you for your mercy and again, giving us ears to hear what the Spirit says and enabling us to come and to find that rest that is in him. How we praise you and we thank you for that, Lord. Help our hearts to remain there and to continue to trust day by day the work that he has performed on our behalf, that our obedience would be joyful and liberated 
um, because of all that he has accomplished. So we thank you for that. Pray that you would bless our time now as we head into the service, that we would be attentive and uh, eager to hear your word proclaimed to us and to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for these things, all the means of grace that you have given to us as your people to strengthen our faith and to keep us looking to you. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.